Look, I don't know what you know about Roman warfare or how their army uh, worked, but as illustrated by the picture there, I'm going to just move this, as illustrated by the picture there, the Roman army was, was famous for its battle formation. It, it won many victories. It was a formidable opponent, conquered virtually the whole world, and because its army was well organized, and whenever they encountered uh, opposition, they would form these battle formations, such as you can see just there, which enable them to be formidable and show strength. It's how they were victors. And so an enemy coming against them, their chief aim would be to disunify them, to, to, to break up uh, this rank that they had. It was the only way they were going to stand a chance against them. So united a Roman army was incredibly, incredibly difficult to overthrow. Their strength lay in their organized unity. And so Paul, Paul is obviously familiar with that environment. It's his world. He's a first-hand insight into how that works. So in writing to the church, he shouldn't surprise us. He's going to draw on this imagery. Because here's the truth, we know, that, look, in some ways, COVID has separated us, hasn't it? By 1.5 metres or thereabouts. But the important thing is that we remain united. We are at our most vulnerable when we're disunited, uh, when we're separated, when we're isolated, uh, when, we, when we, I mean, I, I often say this, don't we? We can't always be a church. We're not, sometimes we're not well, you know, physically or mentally, or, or, or what, you know, maybe working or whatever else, maybe on holiday. Um, but we need to be here because the devil loves to isolate Christians. It's how he picks us off. It's this united front that's essential to our survival. And what we're going to look over, at over the next few weeks is church unity. And this isn't because we're disunified in any sense. It's because it's the text, okay? It's as simple as that. It's our text. And so we're going to look at it together. We trust under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The, the importance and, and how it looks, what church unity looks like. The importance of it, how it looks, how we achieve it, so that we can move forward united, strong, um, you know, unable to be just, you know, defeated or trodden over by our arch enemy, the devil. So we're looking at church unity, and today we're going to look at just one verse. So, we'll, you know, we won't be here long. You can be sure about that. Okay, longish. Anyway, mind you, I think I've got about an hour and a half, because my watch says it's five past ten. <laughs> it does, actually. Uh, well, don't worry, I'm going to work off my marble. That thing's automatic. So we're going to look at just one verse. Uh, we're looking at church unity. And so verse one, here's our subheading. The basis for church unity. The basis for church unity. Here's what Paul writes, demonstrated earlier by the apostle and his scribe. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So what we're looking at together, Paul is beginning 
chapter 2. Except it's not really chapter 2. We often forget, don't we, the chapter divisions weren't there. Uh, and in some places, they're really artificial. They don't work. And this is an instance. So, for example, here, chapter 2. I'm just going to show the Greek sentence there of chapter 2. There it is. And you can see a Greek word there, the third one in, un, there. It's actually, because it's the way the Greek's ordered, it's the beginning of verse 1. And the beginning of verse 1 begins with so, or then, or therefore. It's a conjunctive in 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 the English language and so really verse 1 begins with therefore or so then so if you're beginning chapter 1 verse chapter 2 verse 1 therefore what are you saying you're saying yes that this is all related to what I've just said and it's really important again we miss it in our English but it's important if we can understand the context and one thing about preaching, what we're trying to avoid doing, is we're trying to avoid postcard or picture frame preaching. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, you have the text in your picture frames you, on your wall. You know, they're lovely, but by and large, they're terribly, terribly misused, misplaced. Because all of those texts that we stick up on our mantelpieces have context. I mean, I'll give you the famous one. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you future and hope. Well, I love that, and that's a very popular one. But it's got a context. It's about being in exile. And it's about God promising to deliver exiles from exile. And so can you see? So when we're using these texts, it's important we know what they're about. And it's important we know what this is about. And this is all about... Philippians 1, 27 to 29. I'll read them to you. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then when I come, when I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way, by those who oppose you. Can you see that's Roman barrack language? Can you see that? It's straight, it's straight from an army. Can you see? I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit. It's how the Roman army work, contending as one man, unified in the gospel, without being frightened. They were hardy men that weren't frightened easily. So he's taking rhetoric straight from the Roman army, and is using it to demonstrate what the church is to do. It's used to stand firm, be united in the light of what? Just have a look at the last verse. What has their unity, this church unity, got to be about? What's the context of church unity? Why do they need to be unified? It's the last verse. Because of trouble. Because of opposition for the gospel. They are facing, they're about to face great opposition in the gospel. They're going to suffer big time for Jesus. In fact, he says they're called to suffering. And the only way they're going to get through this opposition to the gospel, this trouble, this suffering, is for them to be united as a church. For them to work together. To see each other through the challenges. It's, it is a team 
sport Christianity and we function as a team and, and that camaraderie as a team is essential to our survival. I mean, look, you know, the future of Living Word Church hangs, if you like, on our unity, on us being, being, being one in mind and purpose and action. And so here's what Paul says. We're going to break it up into four bits for you, this verse one. We. Did I say we? I'm going to. It sounds weird, doesn't it? I'm going to break this up into four bits for us. Uh, this is just first one. So first bit, each one will have a heading. First one, being in union with Christ. So Paul is going to call them to unity and, and he's given four reasons to do so. Four reasons to do so. First one is being in union with Christ. Listen to this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. We talk a lot about being in union with Christ. Uh, what does it mean? Have a go. You know, we're, we're in union with Christ. It's a biblical theological term. What does that mean? What is being in union with Christ? What does it look like? I mean, there's lots of things, actually. I'm going to focus on one today. But Pardon? Yes, thank you. One of our being in union with Christ is, is, is that we increasingly take on his mind. We begin to think like him, act like him. Thanks, Sylvia. Body and theologian. Uh, anything else? Anything else? Pardon? Did you say something? I'm, I'm, I'm not hearing you very well. It comes with age. That. Being, uni, uni, being in union with Christ has something to do with that. What, happens, what happened there? Uh, you might not know this one, but what happened there? Thank you. That's what I'm getting at. Thank you, Pam. Theologian number two. Okay, seriously. That's a hugely theological significance to that. When Jesus died, the reason our sins are forgiven is that we died with him. We were in Christ. We shared with him in union. And look, there's lots more. I'm going to lose my time here, so I'll just skip forward. We're in union with him in standing before the Father. But we're also in union with him in this context. If any encouragement from being united in Christ, in that our unity goes to this level, he too suffered. He also was tempted. He also was ridiculed. He too felt hurt. He too experienced loss. He also faced isolation. He felt pain. He felt need. He felt hunger. And can you see what Paul is drawing on? He's reminding them, look, whatever you're facing, you're facing it with one who's been there. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. One aspect of our unity with Jesus is that he shares or understands or walks with us in our pain. You know, there is no other religion on the face of the planet that can say that about their God. That he's, he's been one of them, walked with them, shared something of their suffering with them. So amid suffering, he calls them to unity, reminding them that Jesus is one with them. Like Jesus said in John 16, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the point here is, when we're walking with Jesus, someone who's suffered with us, we're walking with someone 
who beat suffering, if you like, who beat the world, who overcame. And so there's a positive goal at the end. Secondly, God's love for the church. If any comfort from his love. God is love. And again, there is no religion in the history of the world that's claimed this. No religion. God is love. Which means he does, it's more than he just loves. He's, he's in substance, in essence, love. That's a really dangerous doctrine. Why do I say that? It's a dangerous truth. Why do I say that? Because what, what do we do? It's an attribute of God. It's a quality of His. It's dangerous because when we hear God is love, what do we do with every other attribute of God? Pardon? Yes, we push it aside. The only attribute now is in our focus, the only one we're interested in, the only one we want to build a church on and preach about, have sermons on, is this singular attribute of God. And I think that one thing we have to understand, when, when the Bible says God is love, He is not abandoning His every other attribute. He's also holy. And so, as much as God is love, and as much as we preach about that, it must never be at the expense of diminishing his every other attribute. In fact, it is not his all-defining attribute. And we know that. You know, okay, let me ask you, what is, if you were given a single, one single defining attribute of God, what would it be? It's not love, as much as that is an attribute of God. What would it be? Or holiness, Pam, on the basis that Scripture emphasizes His holiness above every other attribute. So, where does it emphasize it? Isaiah 6, at least. What, what's, what's said of God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're not to play off God's attributes against one another, and certainly not with love, because it's the one that suits us the most. But if there is one defining attribute of God, it's actually His holiness. But nevertheless, when we look at God, we think of Him as multifaceted with many attributes. But one attribute of God, okay, and another thing, His attributes don't lessen against each other. They always stay consistent. Okay, and that's the thing about God is He isn't sometimes more loving, sometimes more holy, because he, what does He say? He changes not. God is always Love, always, and is always holy. He's always just. Can you see? With God, they're all simultaneous. Think about me as a person. I, I exhibit my attributes differently depending on circumstances, and mood, and how much sleep I've had, and, uh, and you know, and who I'm with. Can you see the point? With God, His attributes are always consistent, always. So. With the, act, with the attribute of love, God is love. I want you to notice something before the text comes up. It's already up there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's because I was waffling for ages. Uh, and she's like, get a move on, Montez. You meant to be on this verse now. Yeah, move on. I can't see the screen though, Graham, so it doesn't work. Okay, so God is love. Who is the object of his love? 
Thanks, Pam. And I'm glad you said the church over, over you, because, again, you, that is theologically the truer answer. God's love is a collectively aimed at his church. So thank you, Pam. Yeah, you are the object of his love. God is love. And that may be okay. Yeah, God is love. That's great. What's that got to do with me? You're the object of his love. You are. Listen to this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Like he says, Pam, the church. Just remember, he's looking at us as a body. The church. And then 1 John 4. This is love. That he loved us. God is love, Christian. It's his attribute. And you and I, the church of Jesus, are the object of his love. And so what Paul wants to remind these, these Christians is that because of God's love, they can draw on the comfort that comes from that. And, and look, I've already just said, you know, we, we're not to overplay God's love and keep it in balance. But at the same time, we're not to underplay it and <laughs> keep it in balance. It, every sermon is not to be about God's love. There's, something, there's an issue. If your pastor only ever preaches about God's love, he's diminishing every other attribute of God. But at the same time, he's got to preach about God's love sometime, hasn't he? And preferably in balance. And look, there's an organization in America that we nearly uh, got involved with uh, way back, about eight years ago now, I think, uh, a church planting group. Uh, and uh, they're planting all over the world. They're planting in the UK too. And one of their slogans is what we have at the, on our final slide every Sunday morning, if you ever notice it. Uh, their slogan, their motto for this church planting organization is, You are loved. I know, I'd, I'd heard that and I've seen it on their banners. We used to attend one of their churches. And so, you know, it just became, you know, of not such a big consequence to me, I suppose. And then a couple of years later, uh, you know, things weren't working out great. Uh, I think we were just in between churches. And, you know, I was a bit down. And I was in conversation with this church planting group. And he finished his conversation by using the motto. He says, brother, remember, you are loved. And, you know, it penetrated. It hit me right there. The thing about being told you are loved it really depends where you are at that moment. You know, what your life looks like, what your circumstances look like, what your relationships look like, you know, how things are going. These are Christians in dire straits. Things are difficult. And Paul draws on this attribute of God that they need to hear. Look, you're loved. Draw on the comfort of that. You're loved. Hey, let me tell you. You're loved. God is love and you are the object of his love. Which tells you, which tells me that whatever we face, you see, it's never, ever because he doesn't love us. We, we have to understand that. If we don't understand that, we just think he's some angry God and we've done something wrong and he's just taking it out on us. We have to understand his love, his attribute of love never changes. You are the object of his love that never changes. That means whatever we're facing, it's always consistent with the fact that you're the object of his love. Remember that. And if you need a reminder, 
There it is. If you ever doubt that God, the God who is love, directs his love towards you, if you ever doubt that, remember the cross. And so Paul is reminding them, look, your love, draw on the comfort of that. You're not suffering the way you're suffering because God has given up loving you. You're loved. Thirdly, the church's partnership with the Spirit in the Gospel. Listen to this. If any fellowship with the Spirit. Fellowship here, I don't know if you remember, way back, back in the day when I started Philippians, okay? We looked at this Greek word, and we says it's, there's the Greek word there, it's koinonia. Popular Greek word, you may have used it, you may know it. It just means partnership. I know we think it means drinking tea and eating biscuits after the service, but it really means partnership, in fellowship. These two here, okay, are in partnership. Okay? One of us making sure you can hear me, one of us making sure you can see what you need to see, in partnership. That's what this term means. It's in partnership here. Philippians 1.4. There, because of your partnership in the gospel, Paul and the church were in partnership together. We did that some weeks back. But the point here that Paul is making is that this church, like every church, not only has a partnership with its leader, you and I, I mean, for, you know, you know, for what it's worth, are in partnership. We're doing this together. You know, and they're, if I, if, I, if I may say so, it's good to be in partnership with you. With you, Lynn. You and I are partners. And you, uh, Bron, and Stephanie, Ralph. Hey, we're a team. And you know, it's a privilege to partner with you in gospel work. And, and, and we look forward to what God will do in that partnership. So, so there's a partnership between pastor and church we looked at it in chapter 1 but this partnership is with the Holy Spirit I know we love the term well some of you may you know of being spirit filled you know but we all imagine being spirit filled is all to do with what? you know or the languages or or great powers or you know uh, thoughts about things we or would otherwise wouldn't know and, and I don't want to say that it's not because it is associated with some of those things too but in this context here Paul's not thinking about spiritual gifts as much as what is the purpose of the spirit well, what is the chief purpose of the spirit he's been given into this world because he convicts the world of sin and righteousness because his purpose is to do what Jesus, yes, is to bring people under the sound of the word that he has inspired and through that word to convict and to save. We were told in John 3, there, look, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. And I haven't got time to explain this one and the same thing there. We, we, we cannot be born again without God's spirit. Acts 1.8, you'll receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power to do what? Power to make disciples. So Paul's point here is, 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 is trying to get at this partnership. The Spirit's purpose is to make disciples. And Paul is reminding them that they're in partnership with him. 
It's a reminder, therefore, that in spite of their suffering, the reason their unity is important is that the way that they are going to overcome the resistance to the gospel that they're facing is not by looking inwards, not by a tactical retreat, not by giving up on the world. They're bad. They want to kill us. They hate us. What's the best thing we can do is to withdraw. And Paul's point is, no, that is not the way to safety. Here's what Revelation 12 tells us. I've quoted this before to you. This is how we overcome the devil. They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb, the cross, and... And remember, I'm reading this in, in the idealist view, broad brushstrokes, picture language. So they, the church, overcome Satan, okay, by the power of the cross and by... What's the text say? By the word of our testimony, by our... Not retreat when the world's against us, but by our offensive actions. Can you see that? Is we overcome the devil by action, by speaking. Our testimony, our word, our leafleting, our evangelization, our signboards that are outside, our YouTube productions, all these things, our speaking to our neighbour, our engagement with our community, these are all words of our testimony, and they're as much about making disciples as they are about self-preservation. Look, you know, if you know anything about the military, Sid's been in the military, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Sid, but next slide, please, Ricky. That the best form of defence is offence. And an army that retreats is in danger when being attacked. When attacked, an army that moves forward into battle is most safe, is in its safest position. And so the great commission to make disciples of all nations, friends, yes, it's about making disciples. We must continue to do that. It's also about our preservation. It's when we're the strongest. When we, when we give up on the world because it's a dirty, horrible, bad world, we're in danger of our existence. When we're out in the world, active in it, trying to reach men and women for the gospel, it's then that we're at our strongest. We overcome the devil by the word of our testimony. Look, you're having a bad day? Go and tell someone about Jesus. Seriously. Seriously. When you're having a bad day, Tell someone about Jesus. It's to transform your day. It's to transform your day. Now, just before I move on to the last one, how am I doing for time? Okay, I want you, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a connection between those first three ifs of Paul. I don't know if you picked it up. Anybody pick it up? What's the connection? Those first three are all, hang on a second, Ricky, they're all, what did you notice about? Did you notice anything about them? The first one was, I can't think. I've got to look at my notes, Lynn. The first one was, I'll come to them. But look, next slide, please. They are Trinitarian. Trinitarian. And the next one, please, Ricky. There, look. If you have any encouragement of being united in Christ, comfort from God's love, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, can you see what Paul is drawing on? He wants to make a big argument. You, church, 
however hard it is, however the Satan is trying to decimate you by, by separating you, I want you to stick together. Hold it together. Get into, get into this team-mindedness. And what he's doing, he's using God, the full force of God. He's using God the Father. He's using God the Spirit. Son, rather. He's using God the Spirit. And it's almost as though he's bringing this, this colossal, weighty, and what, what, what is it about the Trinity that's intrinsic to what he's trying to do with them? What is it about the Trinity? It's a united being. We know we've got the United Nation. Our God is a united being. And he's bringing this force to bear on this church. And so the last thing then, D. Our tenderness and compassion. The last thing he's, he's using to try and push us towards being unified as a church our tenderness and compassion for one another. If, if you have any tenderness and compassion. The first three had what we call modifiers. They all pointed to something. This one doesn't. It's left blank. And what theologians think is that Paul, this tenderness and compassion is what this church has towards Paul. Here, here's what Gordon Fee, a theologian, writes. Most likely... It is the Philippians' own heart of compassion towards him, towards Paul, that finally he appeals to. So at last, he's appealing from the Father, from the Son and the Spirit. And lastly, Paul is saying, look, if you, if you have any compassion towards me, in other words, do this for me. You know, if nothing else will stick with you, do this for me. Stick together. Hold on together. Don't give up. Work together. Serve together. Worship together. So tenderness here. I don't know if you guys uh, here had the 1980s, 1980s bounty adverts. You know bounties, the chocolate bar? The coconut one? Bounty? Yeah. Did you have those 80s adverts when then this lady or this, I think it was a woman, she'd be walking along a white sandy beach. It looked like Barbados or Cairns. You know, and there'd be palm trees, and she'd be, you know, the, a, a coconut would drop on the floor. She'd be eating one of these, and it talks about tenderness. You, you didn't have those adverts? Okay, you can get them on YouTube. Okay, so this is totally pointless because it's not that. Okay, now let me move on. Compassion is a deep felt concern for others. And Paul's point is simply this that the tenderness they felt towards him and the compassion they have for him. Now in prison, he's saying, look, do it for me, would you? Do it for me. Work at church unity for me. Hey, here's the point. We're a family. I know we look very different, and some of us sound very different. And there's a diversity of age. We've got what, from a seven-year-old up to a, well, who knows, Sid, Sid, the most senior person of this... Uh, oh, that's what Graham just said. <laughs> Graham. <laughs> okay, look, <laughs> we'll leave you to sort it out. Whoever you are, okay? Look, we're a family. We're diverse. We may not be blood-related, but we have a relationship that is way stronger than that. We've got our differences, and here's what Paul is calling us to do is for the gospel, for our safety as a church, for our future in this world, 
hey, let's work together for Jesus. Hey, let's remember the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're united by love. We're united in action. We have Jesus as someone who's gone before us who understands for one another's sake. Hey, let's work together, move together, and serve together as a united church. Another lovely thing about preaching this sermon to Living Word Bible Church is there aren't any divisions amongst us. Not that I'm aware of anyway. And so in one sense, you know, we're familiar with this, and we, but nevertheless, we can work at this. We can work at working together. One of the things about being a small church is that you have to do stuff. In a minute, we're going to have to tidy up together. We're going to have to all put away together. We all have to dig deep in our pockets and have to give. In a big church, no one really minds if you don't give because there's a lot of money floating around. But here, every tithe matters. In a small church, prayers matter. You know, it's just, just, just us praying for each other matters. And so in so many ways, our smallness lends itself to this operating together as a unified family. And also in a small church, it matters if you're away. Hey, we miss you when you're not here. Way more, look, I know in the big church mentality, you can do one off and three on, or three on and one off, or whichever, or two on and two off, and no one cares. It doesn't really matter. You know, no one's going to notice your seat is empty. But here, it matters. Because we're in it together, and we're serving together. And if we're away, it just makes it that much harder for the family to function. If we don't give, it makes it just that much harder to have the resources that we need. If we don't pray, it's just got that much harder for us to function. If we don't visit one another, we feel it. And so let's work at this together. We're in a warfare. Friends, I prayed about COVID in my prayer. It's not going away, is it? The battle out there is not going to get any less. We've got to work at it together. We've got a cunning experience armed adversary he can't snatch our salvation John 10 no one can snatch them out of my hands but for reasons only God knows he's allowed inroads at times into our circumstances into our lives and the way we're going to defeat him the way we're going to overcome him the way we're going to advance as a church and grow and develop and make an impact in our community is to be united around the gospel in Jesus, in loving fellowship. That's the beginning. We've got some more things, some details in the weeks to come when we look at some of the challenges of church unity. We've got that to come. Thank you.